Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. Before we get started, we want to talk about a couple little disclaimers. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind, so please do not take what we say on this show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat you, cure your illness, disease, whatever, give you medical um, prescriptions or any kind of medical assistance. So please don't take what we say as that, okay? We're going to start off today by talking about an article that I found on a site called The Conversation. It is called Mixed Ancestry Genetic Research Shows a Bit of Native American DNA Can Reduce Risk of Alzheimer's Disease. Since the human genome was first mapped, scientists have discovered hundreds of genes influencing illnesses like breast cancer, heart disease, and Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, black people, indigenous people, and other people of color are underrepresented in most genetic studies. This has resulted in a skewed and incomplete understanding of the genetics of many diseases. Two researchers have been working to find genes that affect people's risk for various diseases. The team recently found a genetic region that appears to be protective against Alzheimer's disease. To do this, they used a method called admixture mapping that uses data from people with mixed ancestry to find genetic causes of disease. In 2005, researchers first used a groundbreaking method called a genome-wide association study. The studies combed through huge databases of genomes and medical histories to see if people with certain diseases tend to share the same version of DNA, called a genetic marker, at specific spots. Using this approach, researchers have identified some genes involved in Alzheimer's disease. But this method can find genetic markers only for diseases that are common in the genomes of the study's participants. If, for example, 90% of participants in an Alzheimer's study have European ancestry and 10% have Asian ancestry, a genome-wide association study isn't likely to detect genetic risks for Alzheimer's that are present only in individuals with Asian ancestry. All people's genetics reflect where their ancestors came from, but ancestry manifests as both genetic variations and social and cultural experiences. All of these factors can influence risk for certain diseases, and this can create problems. When socially caused disparities in disease prevalence appear across racial groups, the genetic markers of ancestry can be mistaken for genetic markers of disease. African Americans, for example, are up to twice as likely as white Americans to develop Alzheimer's disease. Research shows that much of this disparity is likely due to structural racism causing differences in nutrition, socioeconomic status, and other social risk factors. A genome-wide association study looking for genes associated with Alzheimer's might mistake genetic variations associated with African descent for genetic causes of the disease. While researchers can use a number of statistical methods to avoid these mistakes, these methods can miss important findings because they are often unable to overcome the overall risk of diversity in genetic data sets. Disentangling race, ancestry, and health disparities can be a challenge in genome-wide association studies. Admixture mapping, on the other hand, is able to make better use of every relatively small data set of underrepresented people. This method significantly gets its power from studying people who have mixed ancestry. Admixture mapping relies on a quirk of human genetics. You inherit DNA in chunks, not in a smooth blend. So if you have ancestors from different parts of the world, your genome is made of chunks of DNA from different ancestries. This process of chunked inheritance is called admixture. Imagine color coding a genome by ancestry. 
a person who has mixed European, Native American, and African ancestry might have striped chromosomes that alternate among green, blue, red, and each color represents a certain region. A different person with similar ancestry would also have a genome of green, blue, and red chunks, but the order and size of the stripes would be different. Even two biological siblings will have locations in their genomes where their DNA comes from different ancestries. These ancestry stripes are how companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe generate ancestry reports. Because genome-wide association studies have come to compare huge numbers of tiny individual genetic markers, it is much harder to find rare genetic markers for disease. In contrast, admixture mapping tests whether the color of certain ancestry chunk is associated with disease risk. The statistics are fairly complicated, but essentially, because there are a smaller number of much larger ancestral chunks, it is easier to separate the significant from the noise. Admixture mapping is more sensitive, but it does sacrifice specificity as it can't point to the individual genetic marker associated with disease risk. Another important aspect of admixture mapping is that it looks at individuals with mixed ancestry. Since two people who have similar socioeconomic experiences can have different ancestry at certain parts of their genomes, admixture mapping can look at the association between this ancestry chunk and disease without mistaking social causes of disease for genetic causes. Researchers estimate that 58 to 79% of Alzheimer's disease risk is caused by genetic difference, but only about a third of these genetic differences have been discovered. Few studies have looked for genetic links to Alzheimer's risk among people with mixed ancestry. This particular study applied admixture mapping to a genetic data set of Caribbean Hispanic people who have a mix of European, Native American, and African ancestry. They found that part of the genome or Native American ancestry made people less likely to have Alzheimer's disease. Essentially, they found that if you have the color blue in certain parts of your genome, you're less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. They believe that with further research, they can find the specific gene responsibilities within the blue chunks and have already identified possible candidates. One important note is that the genetic diversity that plays a role in disease risk is not visible to the naked eye. Anyone with native ancestry at this particular spot in the genome, not just a person who identifies or looks Native American, may have some protection against Alzheimer's disease. This paper illustrates that gaining a more complete understanding of Alzheimer's disease risk requires using methods that can make better use of the limited data sets that exist for people of non-European ancestry. There is still a lot to learn about Alzheimer's disease, but every new gene linked to the disease is a step toward better understanding its causes and finding potential treatments. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about tooth loss. The Miami Herald had an interesting article that came out this week called Tooth Loss Means Higher Risk of Getting Dementia. And every tooth counts, study finds. Just like babies, adults can lose their teeth. But unlike babies, the process in older people tends to mark the beginning of decline in health, particularly in the brain for some of these folks. Now, a new study adds to existing evidence touting a connection between tooth loss and cognitive impairment. An analysis of about 34,000 adults, more than 4,600 of which had diminished cognitive function, found that those with more tooth loss faced a 48% higher risk of cognitive impairment and a 28% higher risk of dementia. 
and the more teeth a person lost, the greater their risk of cognitive decline, according to the study published July 8th in the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. The New York University researchers learned that each individual missing tooth was associated with a 1.4% increased risk of cognitive impairment and a 1.1% higher risk of dementia. But the connection wasn't significant for those with dentures, suggesting that timely treatment of oral health may prevent cognitive decline. Given the staggering number of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and dementia each year and the opportunity to improve oral health across the lifespan, it's important to gain a deeper understanding of the connection between poor oral health and cognitive decline. Our findings underscore the importance of maintaining good oral health and its role in helping to preserve cognitive function. It's unclear exactly why tooth loss leads to cognitive decline, but scientists have found that missing teeth later in life are more common in people with lower education statuses and higher levels of stress, in which people are either not aware about the importance of or are too busy to maintain oral hygiene. Millions of older adults may have undiagnosed dementia, study says. Over time, the lack of oral care can lead to cavities, plaque buildup, and gum disease. Researchers say missing teeth can also make it hard to chew, contributing to nutritional deficiencies that may lead to changes in brain function. But it's periodontist or gum disease that may play the largest role, these studies show. Gum disease is the most common cause of tooth loss in older adults and is responsible for about 50% of all teeth extractions in people older than the age of 40, leaving up to 30% of adults at a high risk of chronic inflammation. Even those who receive treatment for the disease may be left with lingering systemic damage caused by bacteria. A study published last year found that the bacteria that causes periodontis was associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. The researchers say that the bacteria and the inflammatory molecules they produce can travel from the mouth through the blood to the brain, resulting in cognitive decline over time. Another explanation behind the connection between tooth loss and dementia is that people with cognitive problems may be less able to stay on top of their oral care and routine dental visits. About one quarter of adults aged 65 or older have eight or fewer teeth, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and about one in six adults in the same age group have lost all of their teeth. Yikes, that is pretty scary. Take care of your teeth, folks. It is so important. Let's talk about strokes. There was an article in the Telegraph that came out this week. It's called, Are You Heading for a Stroke? The Quiet Signs You Need to Listen To. And I feel like it's really important that we talk about this again, even though I had an episode that we talked about strokes, but let's talk about it a little bit more. We can always use a reminder for that. Most of us are familiar with the immediate signs of a stroke, but new research published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry suggests that the warning signs could appear long before it actually happens. In a study of almost 15,000 patients, researchers in the Netherlands found that stroke sufferers show certain signs of cognitive decline up to 10 years before they are taken ill. After a stroke, it's common for sufferers to experience physiological changes that cause a decline in cognitive skills and make it tricky to carry out routine tasks. Participants in the study were assessed on their cognitive ability and manual tasks such as washing and dressing for an average of 12.5 years to identify when these changes started. 
The research found that stroke patients experienced far steeper declines in cognitive abilities and routine daily functioning, starting about a decade before their first stroke, than those who did not have a stroke. Women carriers of the APOE gene associated with Alzheimer's disease and those with fewer academic qualifications appear to be most at risk. Sadly, strokes continue to be common. Sadly, strokes continue to be common, but previous research found the strokes are up to 90% preventable. So what are some of the other warning signs to look out for? Blood pressure. High blood pressure or hypertension contributes to around half of all strokes, making it the single biggest risk factor. Professors say that ischemic strokes account for about 87% of all strokes and are caused by narrowing of the arteries in the neck and the brain related to hypertension. Hypertension also affects the heart and causes atrial fibrillation. This can lead to blood clots forming in the heart, which is a very powerful cause of strokes. The best way to check for atrial fibrillation is to monitor your pulse. It's normal for occasional beats to be irregular, but if it's continually inconsistent, then you need to let your doctor know. You can have your blood pressure checked at a pharmacy or measure it yourself using a blood pressure monitor. If you're consistently getting readings over 140 over 90, it's important to let your doctor know. For most people, simple lifestyle changes and sometimes medications are enough to lower this reading. TIAs or mini strokes. Sometimes people who experience a stroke will have a series of transient ischemic attacks, TIAs, which cause the same warning signs as a stroke. They are a sudden onset of neurological symptoms caused by a small clot that blocks the blood vessel. Rather than getting some tingling in your hand that progresses over a few hours, it will come on suddenly. The symptoms are very similar to that of a stroke and you might have numbness down one side of your leg, weakness on one side of your face, or a loss of speech or vision in one eye. After TIA, the blood clot either dissolves by itself or the brain has adapted not to be damaged by the blockage. However, TIAs put you at a high risk of having more severe strokes over the next few days, so it's important to seek medical help if this has happened. Blood thinning drugs like aspirin help to prevent or reduce blood clots. If you aren't sure whether you're experiencing a TIA, doctors recommend taking an aspirin anyway. If it's not a TIA, then nothing is lost. If it is, it can have a dramatic effect on the risk of stroke. High cholesterol. Having high cholesterol puts you at a greater risk of both heart attacks and strokes. This is down to a buildup of fatty deposits in your blood vessels, which make it difficult for blood to flow through your arteries and can break off to form a dangerous clot. If you have a history of early heart disease or stroke in your family, it's worth taking a one-off blood test to check if you have abnormally high cholesterol levels. However, lifestyle factors like eating a poor diet, being obese, or not doing enough exercise can also raise your chances of having bad cholesterol. Family history. Although you can take preventative measures to reduce your risk of having a stroke, your family history also plays a part. A 2003 study by hospitals in Europe say that stroke patients who were 65 or younger were almost three times as likely as non-stroke patients to have a parent or sibling who had an early stroke or heart attack. Your family history is more of a risk factor for having a stroke at a younger age. Your risk is probably double the average if you have a sibling or a parent who had a stroke, particularly if they had one when they were young. Generally, your chances of having a stroke increase as you get older, with the risk doubling every decade after age 55. And lifestyle factors. 
Unhealthy lifestyle habits like smoking, heavy drinking, and a diet that is high in salt and fat, as well as a lack of exercise, mean you could be headed for a stroke later down the line. According to experts, smoking makes you twice as likely to die if you have a stroke. If you smoke 20 cigarettes a day, you are six times more likely to have a stroke compared to a non-smoker. Meanwhile, a poor diet may lead to an increase in your blood pressure and cholesterol levels. Studies published in the Journal of Neurology found that the average of someone having a stroke fell from 71 years in 1993 to 69 years in 2005. Researchers put this decrease down to poor diets. To stay healthy, it's recommended that you consume a low-fat, high-fiber diet, which includes plenty of fresh fruit, vegetables, and whole grains. You can also use a stroke risk calculator to work out if you're at risk. It takes into account your age, blood pressure, and cholesterol levels, as well as family history to calculate your risk of stroke over the next 10 years. Highly recommended, particularly if you are in that age group that is at a high risk. Okay, let's talk more about irregular heart rate since we talked about it a little bit in both articles previously. The Miami Herald had an interesting article called Athletes Face Higher Risk of Irregular Heart Rate, Especially Young Ones. Exercise has long been known to improve heart health and reduce one's chances of disease, but there's also a limit that can transform what is usually a beneficial activity into one that puts you in harm's way. It's a reality that many athletes face and more often than you'd assume. A new analysis of existing studies published between 1990 and 2020 found that athletes have a 2.46 times higher risk of atrial fibrillation, the most common type of heart arrhythmia, than non-athletes. The condition occurs when the heart beats too slowly, too quickly, or in an irregular rhythm. Also known as AFib, the condition may come in brief episodes or may be permanent and young athletes are at even more risk. UK researchers found that younger athletes under 55 years old had a 3.6 times higher risk of AFib than older athletes. While the reason the condition affects younger athletes more often than not is yet unknown, some researchers speculate a surge in hormones during physical activity that can explain the age disparities. Doctors in New York say, the condition is multifactorial, meaning several different causes could trigger this condition in athletes. It could be genetics or other health conditions like high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. They also noted that exercise itself can change the structure of the heart by enlarging some of its four chambers where blood flows, particularly those on the left side, which is a known risk factor for AFib. The AFib that a senior with various health conditions experiences will be different than that experienced by someone younger with a genetic predisposition to the condition. But more research needs to be done to fully understand the correlation between exercise and heart arrhythmia. There's little evidence to suggest intense levels of physical activity directly cause the condition. In the UK, they analyzed 13 studies that included data on 70,478 people, 6,816 of whom were athletes in sports like cycling, running, swimming, rowing, football, and rugby. The rest of the participants were non-athletes. Because of limited data on female athletes, the study could not determine the relative risk of AFib by gender. The researchers also didn't find a significant difference of risk of AFib in people with cardiovascular disease risk factors like hypertension, regardless of athletic status. However, 
Researchers did learn that among those without other health conditions, athletes faced a 3.7 times higher risk of the condition than non-athletes. This study was published a few weeks back in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It seems counterintuitive that more physical activity creates a higher risk of AFib, but even exercise must be done in moderation. Research on more than 50,000 skiers in Sweden found the strongest factors of AFib in athletes was the number of races they completed and their race times. The more races and faster times, the higher the risk. It's estimated that 12.1 million Americans will have AFib by 2030, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Common symptoms include heart palpitations, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, chest pain, and extreme fatigue. People with obesity, heart failure, diabetes, kidney disease, hyperthyroidism, and high blood pressure are at the greatest risk for AFib. People who are heavy alcohol drinkers and smokers also face higher risk of developing the condition. So monitor that, people, and see your doctor if you suspect that you are dealing with that as well. Another article that I found for today, this one was in the HuffPost and it's called Plague Found in Six Colorado Counties After Girls' Death. Health officials in Colorado are asking people to take precautions after plague was detected in six counties, including where a 10-year-old girl recently died from causes associated with the infectious disease, which can turn serious if not immediately treated. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment announced a few weeks back the rise of laboratory-confirmed cases among samples of fleas and mammals, which is not unusual during this time of the year. In Colorado, they suspect fleas to test positive for plague during the summer months. While it's rare for people to contract the plague, we want to make sure that everyone knows the symptoms just in case. In La Plata County, in the southwest corner of the state, laboratory tests confirmed a fourth grader who reportedly raised hogs died on July 5th from illness associated with the plague. Her original cause of death could not be confirmed until additional testing was completed. Fleas were collected from the county for testing after residents reported that a prairie dog colony had gone silent and was no longer visible. According to experts, prairie dogs are very susceptible to plague and are good indicators of the disease if they suddenly disappear. If you notice a decreased rodent activity in an area where you normally see active rodents, contact your local public health agency. They're also asking locals not to kill prairie dogs on their property as this could increase the risk of plague transmission if it is present. Plague can be transmitted to humans from direct contact with infected animals or if a person is bitten by an infected flea. Symptoms include the sudden onset of fever and or swollen lymph nodes. They can be treated with antibiotics if caught early, although complications or death can result if it is left untreated. In recent decades, there have been an average of seven cases in humans each year in the U.S., according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, with the majority of cases in New Mexico, which borders Colorado. The disease can take different clinical forms, but according to the CDC, the majority of cases in the U.S. have been in the bubonic form, which can cause swollen and painful lymph nodes closest to where the bacteria entered the body. Historically, plague is known for having killed an estimated 50 million people in Asia, Europe, and Africa in the 14th century when it was known as the Black Death. The five other Colorado counties identified as having plague-positive samples were San Miguel County, El Paso County, Boulder County, Huerfano County, and Adams County. Yikes. So the plague is definitely alive and well, even though we think it's been eradicated.
And the last article for the day comes from People Magazine and it's titled, Baby Girl Born with Partially Developed Embryos Inside Her Stomach. And this one was a little bit freaky, which is why I kind of wanted to cover it on the show today. A newborn in Israel has shocked doctors with an extremely rare medical case. The Times of Israel reported that a baby girl was born with an embryo inside her stomach in a case of fetus in fetu, a congenial anomaly that occurs in about one in every 500,000 births. The girl was born earlier this month at the Aseta Medical Center in Ashdod, the hospital said Tuesday. Ultrasounds and checkups conducted during the mother's pregnancy revealed that the fetus had an unusually large stomach, and following the baby's birth, doctors' suspicions that there was something inside of the girl were confirmed. After conducting an x-ray and ultrasounds, doctors found an embryo inside the newborn. We were surprised to discover that it was an embryo, said Omer Globus, director of neonatology at Estuda. During surgery to remove the embryo, doctors came across two similar sacs in the baby's stomach, leading them to believe that there could have been more than one embryo. We think that there was more than one there, and we are still checking on that, Globus said. Following the successful operation, the newborn is doing well and is expected to make a full recovery. While they did discover what's classified as an embryo in the newborn's stomach, Globus said that the remains they removed from her body were not fully formed. It did not look like an embryo as you imagine it, he said. Although doctors did see some bones and a heart, the embryo was only partially developed. A possible explanation for how the condition occurred is that the pregnancy could have been twins in the beginning before one embryo was absorbed, Globus explained. It happens as part of the fetal development process when there are cavities that close during development and one of the embryos enters such a space, he said. The fetus inside partially develops but does not live and just remains there. How scary is that? So, we do post pictures occasionally. We are on Instagram at podcast.addict. So if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can certainly shoot us an email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. Please shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a show suggestion, a correction you want to make, we'll give you a little shout out on the show. And please join us again next week when we talk about more wild health cases out there and more interesting articles. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life out there, folks. Good night.